Welcome to episode 211 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. How long is the average commute? Well, whatever it was, it dropped precipitously since March when a vast majority of people started working from home. I believe this is what led to a renewed interest in hobbies. For some people, this meant trying something new like making sourdough and gardening. For others, it was time to dig out long forgotten board games and puzzles. Our family did a mix. I started a garden and we now always have an in-progress puzzle. The difficulty is how to have an unfinished puzzle laying out when you have a two and a half and four and a half year old. If we put it on a table that's comfortable to work on, our little ones will wander off with pieces and we won't know they're missing until we've assembled 995 of a 1000 piece puzzle. If we put the puzzle up high on a dresser, then it's out of their reach, but not set up for us to work on while watching Marvel movies our pandemic-era weekly date night. In the past, we've tried building a puzzle on one of those pads that you can roll up. This sounds good in theory, but it's a bit of a production and led to us ignoring the puzzle for weeks and weeks or sometimes forgetting it altogether. This is a problem that needed an innovative solution. Fortunately, we were gifted a handmade wooden puzzle board complete with four thin drawers to make sorting a large puzzle very easy. When we received this gift, we had no idea such a product existed, but it makes sense that it does since we're not the only families with this puzzling dilemma. New business opportunities are like that. If you've never experienced a problem, it's hard for you to see solutions. But if you found a way to overcome a problem, your solution may be something others will pay for. Your challenge this week. If you think you have a good idea for a new product or service, validate the idea before you jump into selling mode. Reach out to 12 to 30 similarly situated people and determine whether the problem is a shared concern or whether only a tiny percentage have experienced it. Even if the problem is widely experienced, is it deeply felt? Is solving it urgent? If you discover you can provide a solution to a relatively common and deeply felt problem, then it's time to pilot your offer. Test out with a small product run if possible or a pilot program with six to 12 people. Then it's time to iterate based on feedback and focus on lead generation. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest believes that the most successful women leaders operate in the world knowing that there is no one stopping them from developing a vision of who they want to be, how they want to be perceived, and how they want to perform their role. In 1997, she founded CEO Vision, to do her part to ensure that women leaders realize the value of their leadership in the workplace and the world. She has helped hundreds of women leaders hit their stride and step into their power. She combines her 30 years of expertise with the best leadership assessments on the market, plus one-on-one coaching and cutting-edge research. She then weaves in powerful leadership-related neuroscience techniques, ensuring that her client's growth as a leader sticks. A pioneering advocate for the advancement of women leaders, She played key roles in AWED, the Women President's Educational Organization, the Women's Business Enterprise National Council, 
and the Women's Presidents Organization. Please join me in welcoming Ellen McKay. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining me for your place in Washington, D.C. Thrilled to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you. As you know, this is a show about uh, leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Ooh, um, I will address the first question first, because I think it's, a, it's actually a tough question. And I've listened to a few of your previous guests, and it's very interesting to, to me to hear what they say. And I think I'd like to start by boiling it down to one thing. Uh, the leader, in my view, has one job, and that's to earn followers. And I want to underscore the word earn. So I think the real question then becomes, how, how does a leader earn followers? It doesn't work to command someone to follow you. Um, so how do you do that? And from my point of view, based on my experience, that is broken down into three distinct, I guess, buckets or skill sets. And I'd like to share, succinctly share that with you if, if that's okay. Um, the first bucket is vision. This is all based on the work of leaders, by the way, that, which is a Wiley publishing product. So, um, I'm a super user of this product. There's an assessment and a book and it's, it's really wonderful, especially for women. And we can get into that later if you want. But so the, the first skill set is all around vision and that's the leader's ability to say, we're going someplace different and it's better than here. So great leaders can almost quite literally see something better. They start in the future and kind of work backwards. They're probably their favorite word is the word imagine or the words, what if? So I work with quite a few of those types of leaders. Now, the thing is, great visionaries aren't uh, automatically great leaders. There's, there's two more skill sets they must have. The second one is the ability to align. And this is the one that most of the leaders I work with struggle with because it's very time consuming. And this is where I, this is where I say the magic happens. This is where my vision for the future, my vision as the leader for the future, what's going to be better, um, becomes a shared vision. It's not just mine. It's not just Ellen's. It's not just Robbie's. It's our vision. And that is a very powerful moment. And that's when you see people starting to row in the same direction and willing to walk over hot coals for you. They're committed and they've bought in. And then the third piece is um, sort of the obvious one, which is execution. And so we have vision. We're going someplace different. It's better than here. We have alignment where we're all rowing in the same direction. And then we can, and then we have a chance at successful execution. So one of my, and, and execution is where you have the plan. It's, it's much more concrete. You have a plan. Uh, you provide your team with all the resources you need. That's when you transition as a leader from doing the work to taking care of the people who are doing the work. So wow. it's a big transitional moment. 
Yeah, yes. yeah. No, this is really, I love this. You, you're like the kind of person who, who lives and breathes this. So it's always fascinating to hear different people's lived understanding of leadership, but you've studied it. So like you come at it from a different perspective. And I, and I love this. There's a vision, alignment, and execution. And that ultimately it's about earning followers. Yes. So having great vision and being able to tell people, you know, let's go here. It's better. You know, let's move over to this other place. It's better when we are right now. That may not be enough, right? Because people don't feel like, well, why? Why? That's not my vision yet. Alignment would be, oh, wow. Now we're all part of this vision. I can see this. I can, like, you're helping me sort of tap into this. I believe. But, I believe. But if, the, if they're really bad at follow through, they will lose followers. So they can have, you know, be very, um, yeah, like, like full, you know, great vision and get everyone all buzzy and excited and then they get distracted and move on. <laughs> right. So execution without vision is chaos. Um, vision without execution is hallucination. <laughs> oh, so good. Okay. Uh, those are tweetable. We'll, we'll make note of that. So. <laughs> and I also, can I share one other thing with you? Because you mentioned, you mentioned it and I think it's really important if there are any leaders out there listening, this is where some of the neuroscience comes in. I'm a disciple of the Neuro Leadership Institute, NLI. If you don't know it, Google it right now. They're fabulous. It's the intersection of leadership and neuroscience. And, and what it tells us is that um, we can learn to drive on the left-hand side of the road. We can hardwire our brains. We can't undo the hardwiring. We can't unlearn how to drive on the right side of the road. But the good news is because of neuroplasticity, we can learn to drive on the left side of the road. It's terrifying. It's horrible. It's scary. Uh, I've tried to do it. I hope I never have to do it again. Um, but the point is, with practice, we get better at it. I had a daughter that lived in Australia for four years, and she was a pro at it. Um, and, and here's the thing about, you know, to me, vision alignment execution is also a change management model. And here's why. Here's partially why. We are pre-programmed as humans to avoid change at all costs. It's genetically programmed in us. We don't want to leave the cave because we're afraid there's a saber-toothed tiger out there. So when a leader is trying to bring someone on board to do something different, to change, um, the brain automatically goes into threat mode and tries to protect itself. So what I would say is for all those leaders out there, the key to me, my experience working with so many leaders is the vision has to be a vivid, almost like you're painting a picture quite literally and be hopeful. And well, I'm going to add a C, which is there has to be something in it for the prospective follower. They have to perceive that their life is going to be better too, not just yours. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how realistic do you think the vision has to be? Well, that's a great question. Um, I always encourage the leaders I work with to be bold. And in the vision alignment execution model, there's actually six best leadership practices under each of those three um, components of leadership. And one of the best practices under visioning is boldness. Hmm. And 
I will tell you, I think that this is a challenge for women in particular. That's my opinion based on my experience. Um, I have been in meetings myself uh, where I'm a participant and I have facilitated meetings where when a woman has a bold idea, it's uh, sort of poo-pooed. You know, what are you crazy? We could never do that. We've always done it this way. And women tend to be, I think, much more likely to back down. So I encourage the leader to go bold and to also paint it. So if you see your team, if you want your team to be more cohesive, uh, firing on all cylinders, you've got to paint the picture of what that looks like. And each person in the room has to literally see themselves in that. So, for example, a cl- sort of a classic example is Martin Luther King saying, you know, I have a dream that the sons of slaves and the sons of slave owners will be sitting around the table having a conversation. It's very vivid. And I think all of us can see ourselves in that picture, in that vision. I love how you're sort of weaving in the idea of storytelling into this, which is something I think a lot of women can tap into as a strength. And if, if they're like leaning into that as part of how yeah. they bring up big ideas, it will feel maybe a little more like, oh, I know how to do that part. The, you know, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's not about standing up for yourself. It's about telling a, a great story. Yeah, yeah. It's a I reframe. appreciate saying that. And I'm thinking of one leader I work with in particular who is – Uh, I would characterize her as an exceptional, extraordinary leader. And one of the things she does really well is tell stories. And I would just refer back to the neuroscience again, just for a second. When you tell a story, it it gets airtime in the limbic system of the brain, which is where our emotions sit, and also loyalty, trust. So when you tell a story... And again, our brains are pre-programmed for stories, for narrative. Uh, People are much more likely to remember. People are much more likely to trust you, believe you. And people are much more likely to to be loyal to you. So it's an excellent point. Ellen, so speaking of stories, I want to know more about your origin story. So (laughs) when do you think you first started to realize you had the skills to lead? You know, I actually posted something on my LinkedIn yesterday that talks about this. It's very short. It's kind of a mini blog. And I was, I think I was probably preparing myself for this conversation in a way. I, um, back in October when we could still, you know, sit in the same room with other people, I was asked to moderate a panel of four very successful women leaders. Plus on that panel, although they just made very um, brief appearances, were two Latina congresswomen one from California and one from New Mexico. And it was the Congressional Hispanic Caucuses Leadership Institute. So we had about 250 people in the room and most of them were young women, Latina women, um, professional, 20s, 30s, 40s. And two of the women on the panel were from the political arena, including Emily's List, and two were from the corporate arena. And one of the questions I asked them ahead of time, I asked them to think about ahead of time, um, was to recall the moment when they first felt 
like a leader. Not when they first thought they were a leader, but when they felt like a leader. And it turns out that's a really hard question. They had, um, they struggled to answer that question. And it also turns out that it was a very emotional question. So when they answered it, they, it had a big impact on the audience because the audience could immediately connect because back to your point, they were telling stories. So I started thinking about my own story. Um, and in my own story, I'm about 12 years old and, uh, I was, a an early beneficiary of title nine. So I was on a little league team. I had a, a, two brothers and they were in little league and I was determined like, why why can't I? And the weekend that I had to sign up, my parents were out of town or something. They weren't around. And so I had to fish for my birth certificate and I, I hoofed it down to the public library a couple miles to, to say, here's my birth certificate. You know, I'm old enough. I can do this. And, and so I signed up and the first team I was on um, just for a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks was a team that did fairly well and they immediately put me out into left field. And I had grown up playing sports with my brothers and my neighbors. So I knew how to throw the ball and hit the ball and catch the ball. I was competitive with my brothers, you know? Um, and my family was very, very sports oriented also. Both my parents were, were very good athletes. So then all of a sudden I was told I was on a different team and it was an expansion team because there were too many girls. So I went on to this team called the Chaparrales Coach was Coach Sullivan, a tremendous human being, New York City cop by day. And um, he had two daughters on the team. And I think to this day, one of the bravest things I ever did was go to Coach Sullivan and say, I want to pitch. And um, it was a really brave thing for me to do. I still get nervous thinking about it. And he said, okay, here, let me see what you got. And turns out I was a pretty good pitcher, so I got to pitch. And our team, even though we had tremendous individual talent, we, we had just come together, you know. So we weren't very good. And, in fact, we sat in last place for quite a while. And then before you know it, we, were, we started winning games. We didn't really notice. We just played hard. We practiced hard. We loved each other. We took care of each other, you know. And... So there we are on this particular day and we're in second place. We've gone from dead last, like 12th or something to, to second. And I'm pitching and we're winning by one run and we're, and we're playing for first, the first place slot, right? So we're winning by one run. The other team has a runner on first and a runner on second and no outs. So I'm standing on the mound and I, you know, it's funny what you remember. I remember all this dust. I remember hearing lots of people, you know, shouting and screaming. I remember seeing Coach Sullivan pacing. He was, a, he was a, like the mellowest guy of all time, and he was pacing. And, and I thought to myself, you know what? I, your team needs you to do more than just throw good pitches. And I, I didn't really know what to do. And then I remembered watching the Yankees on TV and how the pitcher would turn around and talk. I don't know what he said, but he would talk to people in the field. So, so that's what I did. I turned around and I gave my 12-year-old version of a pep talk. And really what I wanted to say to them, um, 
they, they were, I mean, they are, I call them my beloved team. Um, I wanted to let them know how much I believed in each one of them and how much I believed in us as a team. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind we could do it. And I was clapping as best I could with my, with my baseball glove on and was waving to the left fielder because I'd been out there. I knew what it was like. Um, and they settled down and we won the game. Wow. And the moment that that happened, we cheered. It was a really big deal for us, you know, uh, kind of snuck up on us. And what I remember really well, and it still propels me or powers me to this day is coach Sullivan coming up to me and handing me the game ball. And he said, I, all he said, man, a few words, I, I think you should have this. And then he walked away. I still have that ball. Um, and I, I think what he was saying to me, you led today, you, you stepped, you took a giant step out of your comfort zone, which I had, and you lifted up your team. That's so a good that's story. Oh, that's a good memory. story. Ellen, I, I'm sure you don't get a chance to share that story all over the place. I'm so glad you shared it here. And I think that your family probably prepared you for that moment, though. I mean, I know that that is like a, a critical moment in your life, but you were you were ready for it for all the ways that you were probably brought up even before that, right? Like, um, you know, the, the time you have your your family, what you were like at school, you know, the fact that you the fact that you like walked yourself to go sign up, you know, like I remember that. I was like, you know, to heck with them. I'm going. I'm right. getting I'm getting that birth certificate and I'm going. No delays, right? Making it happen. Where did you like think you were going to be as you were in school and, you know, in high school and such. Did you, did you have a sense of where you wanted to go in life? You know, my mother was born in 1920, the year women got the right to vote. She was the sixth of nine children, Italian immigrant parents. She married at 35. She had four children between age, ages 38 and 43. She, her four brothers were in active combat in World War II. She took the four foreign service exam. She did well. She came here to D.C., worked in the old executive office building, and then was shipped over to the island of Martinique. So she was a feminist before I think the word existed. And she raised us, two, two sons, I have two brothers and a sister, so two and two. She raised my sister and I to believe that... Um, your education is your independence and that we could be or do anything a man could do. I was the only girl in my fifth grade class that when asked, believed I could be president of the United States. We, and we still don't even, you know, that's a long time ago. Still hasn't happened. Um, so all of that to, is to say that I'm, I'm 60 years old, that I think I was raised a little bit differently than a lot of my peers so my mother encouraged me and my sister in particular, she knew the boys would be okay, um, to have a profession. So, because she believed that, two things, she believed that if we decided to have a family at some point in our life, that we could put that profession on hold and come back in, always hang a shingle out is what she used to say. She believed that I should be a lawyer and I sort of regret that I didn't do it because I think I would have enjoyed it. I didn't have enough confidence in myself to do it at the time. 
Um, and my sister actually got her PhD. She's a neuropsychologist now. So, so all of that is a long way of saying that I was encouraged to be a quote unquote professional. Um, for a while, I thought I'd be a doctor. My best friend was the youngest of four and her three older siblings were doctors, very middle class, working class community. So this was a really big deal. I studied psychology in college and English. I was a double major and that'll get you exactly nowhere. And, you know, I graduated from college in 1981 and everybody was going to MBA school and law school and medical school. And, uh, and there I was, you know, um, and my father, who was also a man of very few words, sent me an article, believe it or not, in the mail. And it was, he'd cut it out from Newsweek and it said something about industrial psychology, which was a new field. So organizational development is what the, the contemporary term is. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. And then when I was on a plane shortly thereafter and I sat next to a woman who was an industrial psychologist, I thought, okay, that's a sign. Um, and I started investigating and reading and I got a job in that field and kind of worked my way up through that field. It's interesting because I, I love the idea that you um, found your way to something that almost didn't exist until yeah, and like you, you learn about it, which is it's like a burgeoning field. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, um, my, my master's degree is what's called um, pers- in 1984 or five personnel and industrial relations. And I just put, you know, nobody knows what that is. So I just put organizational development because it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I loved the combination of the relationships and kind of the psychology of business. And we know through neuroscience and other research now that having a solid foundation in learning and growth and culture in your organization is the key to, uh, it's the foundation to getting your financial results. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason I love the Neuroleadership Institute because they've finally given us the data and the science behind what we've known all along. So you were, you know, working for various companies, building up your skill set building up your network. And then in 1997, was that, was that actually, did you leave corporate at that point or is this sort of on the side? Like, how did you make that shift, that transition, that leap My to first your own thing? Big, big, awful recession. And I went to work for a small woman owned company. And that gave me my, that gave me the taste of entrepreneurship and working with women. I was very, very lucky. I'm still in touch with, with Betty to this day like a second mother to me or sister or something. Um, I then went into corporate America and I went to work for McDonald's corporation as in the hamburgers. And I went, it was in human resources and I had the opportunity to set up the corporation's first older worker employment program hmm. and the organization, the company's first college recruiting program. So I had a lot of creative license there. My boss was another woman who I learned a lot from. She was a great mentor Um, and, uh, for a variety of reasons, I think it was the day I got the magazine of the three senior vice presidents of human resources, and they were all white men. 
I saw that magazine and something changed, shifted in me. And I thought, you know, I'm just never going to be on the cover of that magazine. So I resigned and I ended up working for a nonprofit that was the first in the country to provide business counseling and training to women entrepreneurs, the American Women's Economic Development Corporation. I helped Susan Berry open the DC office in 1991. We lost funding around 1997. And that's when I decided to kind of combine my HR work. I learned a ton when I was at McDonald's, a ton, a ton, a ton. Oh man. Um, and my love of working with and for women entrepreneurs. That's, that's a little bit accidental, but that's how it happened. Yeah. I was just going to ask you actually, like, it feels like looking back through your career history, it all feels very inevitable and thoughtful and planful, but it sounds like in the moment that it was anything, but like you were just sort of saying yes to new opportunities as they came, but the through line wasn't super clear in that minute. Right. Yes. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, there was no such thing as women's studies or, you know, there had been the feminist movement in the sixties, but honestly, when I came out of college and I, again, I wrote a mini blog post about this in 1981, um, my my, my female classmates and I were convinced that we were going to, you know, topple the patriarchy and boy, were we wrong. Boy, were we wrong. So entrepreneurship, you know, when I, when I went to work for AWED and then subsequently other women, uh, women's organizations, um, they were pioneering organizations. Um, and at, at one point, probably around the year 2000, maybe a little bit after that, women were starting their own businesses at twice the rate of men because they'd had it. You know, it's interesting. The women that I work with in my private uh, my private coaching clients, um, and I, and, and my my ideal clients are entrepreneurial women, in their like late forties and beyond. And I used to say fifties and sixties um, until people in their late forties started asking. And then I had a client that I just worked with who was eighty six, so I don't have a cap. Wow, <laughs> anymore. Um, and she's still working. I think. Uh, did you write a blog post about that? Was I just that- shared about her. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I read that. That was. Awesome. She's uh, Dorothy Wilhelm and her interview is going to yeah. come out um, in, uh, well, just actually come out the week before yours. Uh, so last week's, if you're listening to this one, it was the one right before Ellen's. Um, so yes, Dorothy is, is, is amazing. Um, she calls okay. herself a time traveler without the spaceship. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like, <laughs> she I lived love it. That, that post. Thank you for writing that. That was great. But, you know, I, I think what I've sensed, and the reason I love working with this community of women is that they're ready to yes. take something else on. They yes. want more. Their time is now. They've taken care of yes. everybody else. But they also yes. often start like they're, they're, they act like they're starting from scratch. And yes. if they need a little reminding, you got 20 or 30 years of, you know, yeah. experience and network and community and, and people you've given to. It's, you can get, give a little, get a little back now. And once they realize that, it unlocks a sort of power in them and then they can accomplish everything. It is an ama- amazing phenomenon. And it's one reason I love the work of leaders assessment because it focuses on the leader's natural strengths. So some of us have natural strengths in visioning, some in alignment, some in execution. Um, and, and part of the work is 
helping them identify their strengths and then transform them into what I call towering strengths. Um, Once a woman understands, the other thing we work on is her leadership brand. So for example, you know, Robbie, a year from now, what would you imagine that you have three of your, your clients sitting in a room talking, you're not there, you can't hear them. Um, and, but I'm there and I ask them to, you know, give me three words that describe Robbie as a leader. And this is 2021. And, you know, what three words do you want them to use? And this becomes a very powerful exercise for women because A, no one's ever asked them that before. B, a lot of their natural leadership tendencies have been punished. So for example, women lead with head, hands, and heart. And leading with, and lead with all three. And believe that leading with all three is required for success. So I personally was quote unquote punished for leading with my heart and leading with my hands. Uh, Now we know better. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about this this, uh, piece around networking though, Ellen. Because- because you have met so many people, you have helped build and sustain so many great organizations. And, you know, we met, we met through uh, a mutual connection, Heidi. Yeah. So like clearly, you know, you're well thought of and, and referred to things like this and good opportunities. How do you think about, you know, you have sort of the inner circle of people that you, you know, you know, you're going to stay in touch with, but then you have sort of that second and third tiers out, the people that maybe you see, once you're at a conference or you worked with five years ago, but you like these people. These are people you generally like. How do you think about that relationship? How you nurture or sustain those kinds of connections? Any habits, philosophies, practices? I am still in touch with people, not many, but a few since I've known, since about 1974. Um, Which the record is 46 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I know that because I was born that year. 74? What year were yeah. you born? 74. 74. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a few. I mean, I was, you know, I was still a kid, but I but I have a few from wow. them. And I prioritize relationships because I believe that results come through relationships. And and I remember one time meeting with the, at the time, the president of Bell Atlantic, and I was going to ask for money for my nonprofit, which he gave us. He gave us a lot of money. Um, and I said to him, why? He had like 11 or 12 people that reported directly to him. And let's say it was 12 of the 12, 10 were women. And I said, why is that? Is like, is that intentional? And he said, it wasn't at first, but I realized the women were so much better at developing the relationships um, and that's what was selling, you know, that's what led to the sale. And I, and I guess I believe the same thing. Um, so relations, relationships to me are the, the most valuable asset I have. And I take care of them. I nurture them. I polish them. I, I take care of them. Is there anything and, in particular that you do? Like, um, you know, do you have a, any systems or is it sort of more like as people come into your mind, you, you take action? I do have connections with people on social media. I try not to be a social media freak. Um, I prefer Instagram, for example, to Facebook. 
Um, but I'll do the Facebook thing when I'm curious about how someone is doing. I also have, um, I graduated from college in 1981. I have two Zoom groups. One is the, the group of seven. Um, we've been getting together every year since 1981. And now we can't do it for real. So we're doing it once a week on Zoom. And then three of my roommates uh, from college, so three completely different people, um, we meet every other Tuesday night on Zoom. So three people who you happen to live with at different points in your life meet with you all in one group? Yes. So we were all roommates on Estuary. We went to Georgetown University. Wow. And we were roommates from 79 to 81. You know what I love about this story is that it illustrates the, a shift that's happened with the pandemic that I've witnessed yes. too. Um, my wife was trying to get together with her friends from grad school. And the last time she had seen them was our wedding. And we got married seven years ago. So they were talking about getting together this summer. And they didn't get on a call to have that discussion. They didn't video chat. They did it all through text. So no actual catch up, all just talking about logistics. So when it became evident that they weren't able to do that, my wife simply said, who's around tonight at six o'clock? Here's my Zoom link. And they all got on. And they've been doing that now like every month since. And instead of waiting seven years or 10 years or the next wedding or the next funeral. Yes. They have a way to now do this. And our close friends who we've all scattered a bit, we all have kids, we all busy lives. We, you know, we were sort of waiting for the next trip or waiting for the next uh, holiday. We're now using an app called Marco Polo. Oh yeah. Which I just learned about. Little videos or something. Little videos. And so throughout the week, randomly, whenever we think of it, we do ones, we we show, do it with our kids or not with our kids or what we're cooking or just updates. And we use like a rosebud thorn sort of format to like what's going well, what's yes. what's, on, what's coming up and what's struggle. I have to say, like, I'm so grateful for these little yes. ways that we're going to stay connected. Even, yes. even when we go back to being able to, I mean, I can't wait to hug a stranger, Ellen. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there with you. And my Tuesday night call in particular, because the four of us haven't gotten together probably since the last wedding or funeral, um, at the end of every call, we say, this is the silver lining. We were very, very close in college. We lived together. We ate every dinner together. You know, we love each other. And um, so to be able to be with them again is a gift. It's a gift. Yeah, yeah that's wonderful. Particularly at a time in life where like your lives are probably no longer intertwined and you right. don't have the reasons to see each other. Yeah. So um, do you, like, are you have any other practices that you do or is there anything like regular communication to people or regular updates? I, I just, I, I imagine you have met more people than you can ever remember. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, or I would say probably more people yeah. know you than you even know. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, I've been doing a lot of Zoom happy hours, probably three a week. That to me is a lot. Um, staying in touch with different people, including certain clients that, you know, have had wow. to put their work on hold. And, you know, when the pandemic first hit and everybody was in a state of paralysis, you know, catatonic state, my strategy was stay connected. And I knew, I didn't know what I, at that time, what I could do to help them, but I, I really believed that I could eventually. I just had to be with them and listen to them. 
And so that's what I did. And it, you know, and it paid off business-wise. I think that I had a similar moment, like the moment of paralysis feels, uh, it felt like it took forever. But when I go back and actually map it out, I think it was three days. Yeah. But it, it felt like an, a week. Yeah. It was like, ah, oh, never, I will have no idea what to do. But the phrase going through my head the whole time was, how do I show up? How yeah. do I show up? How yeah. do I show up and add value? How do I show up? Yes, like, exactly. Yes. Because everything I was known for, I don't know how much you know my background, but you know, I was teaching people networking, like handshakes, eye contact, business cards, and body language. You know, completely irrelevant <laughs> for today. <laughs> and I actually just wrote a post that's going to come out in a few weeks on my email. So now it'll have been out since uh, this came out. But um, when I put together all of my skills and everything I've done in life and all my passions, it is inevitable what I ended up doing. But I didn't know that in those three days, yeah. right? <laughs> That's, but I, I think you're right. Like sh- showing up, how do you stay connected? You know, listening, and, and listening deeply, listening. deeply, deeply. And I, again, that's, um, we know from neuroscience that listening to people, we literally know from the activity in the brain that when you listen deeply, the other person's threat level diminishes they feel safer. So that's what I did. You know, I, I was tempted to sort of, I don't know, you know, jump into action. Um, and eventually we were able to figure out what I could do that would provide some value to them. But a lot of it was listening. Yeah. Uh, I had the phrase like looking for the gaps, you know, yeah, like where are the gaps and how can I, how can I jump in and help in that yes. gap? Yes. Yeah. I, um, I, I can't remember being so exhausted since I had a new baby those first two and a half months because I was filling my brain with so much information. And, you know, um, I had never, I, I think like most of us operated in a, in a <laughs> pandemic, a worldwide crisis. Um, so I was kind of educating myself about trying to stay one step ahead of them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I just wanted to be there for them. Really. I know that sounds sappy, but yeah, no, but it's good. I mean, these cliches came from somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, um, we're wrapping up in a minute, but I, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, you know, I, I, I know Ellen, you and I are going to stay in touch. I'm, I'm know about yes. that. I'm pretty excited about that. Yes. Well, let's say it's a year from now and we are reflecting on all of your successes from the past year. What are we celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the next 12 months? I've been developing, um, started just before, well, started thinking about it just before the pandemic. And now I have a developer, somebody who I've hired to help me with this. I'm developing an emerging leaders accelerator. And it's going to be a combination of uh, the online classroom, if you will, online learning, um, one-on-one coaching, peer support group. And a lot of reflection, because we know that when someone reflects on something new that's been presented to them, that there's a lot of neural activity and new connections are made. And I also believe that with emerging leaders, I love working with them. They're so awesome that if you go back to Newton's first law of motion, an object at rest remains at rest unless it's compelled by an external force. And for a rocket to blast off, for example, it has to overpower gravity 
and drag, enormous power. And it requires a very specific kind of rocket fuel. And so that's how I think of this accelerator, the rocket fuel, to get off that launch pad and power through that gravity that's trying to so hard to hold you down. And then when the rocket gets to a certain point, it actually uses a different kind of fuel, believe it or not, so that it can soar into space. And um, the, the Emerging Leaders Accelerator uh, will attempt to do both of those things. Wow. I can't wait to celebrate that with you. That sounds yeah, so exciting and necessary. Yeah. This is wonderful. Ellen, how can people find you and follow your work? Well, I have a LinkedIn page. And I can't tell you the exact address because they're very long, but um, my name is Ellen, E-L-L-Y-N. That's the only tricky part, McKay. So you can, I think I'm the only one in there that spells it that way. We'll have the link in the the chat. Yeah, we'll have the link in the the show notes. Yep. That's probably the best way because I post about twice a week. Great. So we'll actually have that, your Twitter and your website, covisionllc.com at ontheschmooze.com, which is where you'll also be able to find all the all the other links and resources for today's episode. Ellen, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so wonderful. It's my pleasure. Can I say one more thing to the women leaders out there? Do you mind? What I want to say to you is it's, you are unique. And it's your uniqueness that will contribute significantly to you being a great and successful leader. And once you understand what makes you unique, you will be able to step into and embrace and own your power as a leader. Awesome. That's a good note to end on. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ellen. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 211. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. And whether you're interested in building an online course, a group program, or just want to be a stronger presenter, it's time to get certified No More Bad Zoom. The September cohort of the 5% Advantage program is starting on September 11. The investment for this four-week certification program is $1,500. If you want more information, you can visit the 5percentadvantage.com. That's the number 5percentadvantage.com. You're also welcome to email me at robbie at robbysamuels.com. I'm happy to share more details and schedule a chat to see if this is right for you. If you enjoyed this episode with Ellen, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review and Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E.
This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.